0: Okay, guys, grab your Bibles now and open them back uh, with me to um, the book of Ruth. We have, we're going to try to wrap this up, but it's, we have one more after today. And, and Next week, we'll have the Lord's Supper. So it'll be uh, that, to next Sunday when we'll finish up our study of the book of Ruth. So you follow as I read. We're in chapter 4. We'll start at verse 13, and I'll read through the, the end of the chapter. You follow as I read reads like this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, and she became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. And Amminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this endures forever. Hey, did you notice, um, did you notice the title of my sermon this morning? You ever read those? A theodicy. I mean, do you know what that is? What in the world is a theodicy? Um, well, I'm going to tell you. And we're going to learn a new word today. Now, aren't you glad you came? You're going to learn a new word. Um, l- let me read you the, what the experts, how the experts define the word a theodicy. Uh, this is from Martin Lloyd Jones, my number one hero. He says, "A theodicy is a justification of the ways of God with respect to man, a justification of the ways of God with respect to man." Uh, John Piper defines it this way. John Piper, much loved around here. Uh, he says, "It's a humble attempt to show as best we can from scripture and reason, that God is good in all He does and all He allows." Now, let me give you the uh, pedestrian, blue-collar, unsophisticated definition. That would be mine. A, um, a, a theodicy is a defense of God. It's a vindication of God. Now, guys, what I'm saying is that in this last paragraph of the story of Ruth, we, we see there contained a theodicy. Now, how does a scene of an old grandmother seated in a rocking chair, rocking her newborn grandson, how does that vindicate God? Well, we're going to find out. You know, um, when you first read this story, it's almost like, well, it's just the close of the story, and it's like a fairy tale, and it ends by saying, and they all live happily ever after. Mm, It's far more than that. I can assure you. And um, let's see if we can profit from it together. Guys, I want to remind you as I start this morning of the the theme or the goal of this whole series. You may recall that when we started, I started you off in John 17, 3. John 17, 3 is this. Jesus is praying and he says, and this is eternal life. That they may know you. What I've been doing throughout the study of the book is that I've been trying to give you illustrations of things that that, that are true about God that you may not have known. This is a book, except for the last uh, half of one chapter, a book that's filled with sorrow and pain. It starts, as you recall, a husband dies and his two sons die, and it's a big old mess, well, what are we supposed to expect from God in those? I mean, is is this what God does to his people? Um, I mean, what... As a child of God, what am I to expect, particularly while living out a life that is complex at best, painful at worst, What are the things that I should know about God? Well, guys, um, God doesn't get much applause in this story until the end. Um, people aren't really settled with God while they're going through their difficulties. It's only, it's only towards the end where God gets vindicated, and that's important, it's only towards the end of this story where God gets vindicated. Okay, that, that's what we've been doing, that's what, we're, um, that's what we're about in this study of the book of Ruth. Now, um, l- l- let's start this way. I want to read over again, I want to read one verse. I want to read to you uh, verse 13. It goes like this: So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, stop right there. Um, we're told uh, in the opening few words of verse thirteen that Boaz took Ruth and became, and she became his wife. Well, how did that happen? How did uh, what, what, what what took place? When a man took a woman to be his wife in this culture. Um, guys, the cultures, I've, I've said again and again, are different. Uh, for instance, engagement in this culture was far different from the engagement in ours. In in, in this culture, engagement represented a legal contract. And uh, oftentimes there was a dowry price that was paid. Um, but the couple, the engaged couple, was immediately... Recognized as a husband and a wife. Um, and to symbolize their engagement, they had this little ceremony where they drank wine together, and, and, um, and then after the ceremony, the groom would then return to his father's house for a period of up to a year. Um, for that entire time, uh, between their engagement and their, the, their marriage, he would remain separate from his intended wife. She would not see him again until it was time to consummate their union. Now, the bride had one job during his absence. She was to prepare herself for his coming and for the spending of the rest of her life with him. While she was doing that, while she waited for him to come back, she knew what her groom was doing. He was spending that year adding an apartment, uh, an add-on to his father's house in which the two of them would spend their life. That's where they would live. When that engagement year ended... At an exact time and date that the bride did not know of, the groom would gather his wedding party and in a torch-lit procession would travel to where the bride was living. His arrival would be preceded by a shout from one of his friends which would alert his bride that he had come. Do you remember any of that? All of that's found in a parable uh, in Matthew 25 about the 10 virgins, you know, the 10 wise and the 10 foolish. Now, um, but she was to be ready whenever he got there. Uh, when he arrived, he would take her and with her attendants, she would then travel to her new home. And when they arrived at that new home, there would be a party awaiting her, a party ready to happen. But before the celebration began, the bride and groom would be escorted to the bridal chamber. Where for the first time, they would express their covenantal relationship in a physical union. And then the husband would emerge from the room alone and the party would begin. Now, why did you tell us all that, Jimmy? Well, you're going to see. But I hope you'll remember some of those details, guys, because they're very rich, I think, uh, and be quite enjoyable for us in a minute or two. But first of all, I want to talk about this whole idea that she became his wife. She has an entirely new status now. Ruth has an entirely new status. Guys, in, in the course of the book, whenever Ruth was mentioned, she was always mentioned as Ruth the Moabitess. Uh, five or six times, when she was mentioned, she was mentioned as Ruth the Moabitess. Now gang, um, I haven't said much about the Moabites or the origin of the Moabites. I've, I've kind of saved that for now. Do you know where the Moabites came from? Do you know who the matriarch of the Moabites were was? Well, it was a woman who was Lot's daughter. This is all described for you in Genesis 19. You can go look at it. But um, Lot and his two daughters, of course, have just fled Sodom and Gomorrah. They're out living in caves, and the two daughters decide, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Uh, we'll never have any children. And so they come up with a plan. And you remember the plan? The plan was that they were going to get their father drunk, and they were going to sleep with their father. One of the daughters, oh, they both do that. They execute that plan. But one of the daughters sleeps with her father, who is drunk and she conceives and she gives birth to a son that she names Moab. The nation of Moab (laughs) has its roots in incest. The point of that, ladies and gentlemen, is Ruth is her ancestors. The matriarch of her nation is guilty of incest. And Boaz, who is the Christ figure in this story, he's the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, the, 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 the Christ figure in this story takes his wife, from a nation that was born in incest. Ruth used to be a Moabite and she used to be barren. But both of those things are about to change. She's now a wife. Um... The text, the thing that it says after them being married, it says, and he went into her, which is, a, which is a very discreet Hebrew idiom that refers to sexual intimacy. And guys, this is the thing for which Naomi longed back in chapter one. Naomi, the mother-in-law. But she could have never dreamed that Boaz, the community leader, Would marry a Moabite. A a woman from a different race. Um, the idea that Boaz would take a Moabite and make her not his servant girl, not his slave girl, make her his wife. What a story. What a story of redemption. Why, you know, only God could figure something like that out. Yep, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. And that is a part of the whole vindication of God in this story. In the face of um, bitterness, in the face of complaint, in the face of racial prejudices. God ruled over all of it, and he accomplished his redemptive plan. Guys, do you remember back in chapter one when Naomi was saying, Don't call me Naomi. No, no. I don't don't, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And here I stand. I went out full, but now I'm empty. Really? She um she's not saying that anymore. Because in spite of all of that, in spite of all of the, 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 losses, in spite of all the sin, God continues to accomplish what he has set out to accomplish in the face of human sinfulness. But the story's not done, guys, or the, the verse is not done. He goes into her and the Lord gave her conception. Guys, um, we all know how people get pregnant. There are women in this room who would tell you, yeah, but it's 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 certainly not automatic. But notice how precisely this text says this. It doesn't say, and Ruth got pregnant. It doesn't say, and Ruth conceived. What it says is, the Lord gave her. The Lord gave her conception. And all of a sudden, Yahweh, who has been maligned, Yahweh, who's been misunderstood, Yahweh, who has been complained against, Yahweh, who has been rejected, Yahweh, whose ways are mysterious and we don't understand them, Yahweh, who's been untrusted, Yahweh steps out of the shadows. And he brings an end to the famine. He's already ended the famine of bread in chapter 1, but now, now he ends this other redemptive famine by giving, by giving conception. You know, he's done that on numerous occasions in the past. In Genesis 21, Sarah was barren and Abraham, he gave her conception and Isaac was born. Uh, In Genesis 25, Rebecca was barren. But she was given conception with, um, with Isaac and Jacob and Esau were born. In chapter 30, Rachel was barren, but Rachel was given conception, and Joseph was born. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah was barren, and Elkanah, and, they gave, and God gave her conception, and Samuel was born. In the New Testament, Elizabeth was barren, and he gave her conception, her and Zacharias and John the Baptist was born. All of these women were barren, but not virgins. But God has overruled in their barrenness. And, and you know, guys, there is, on one occasion, God not only sets aside their barrenness, he, um, he sets aside the whole process of procreation. That was with this story about this virgin whose name was Mary. And Joseph, her engaged, but not yet consummated because Joseph made no contribution. And with exquisite, elegant language, the text says, And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will inhabit you. And from that, Jesus Christ was born. Gang, every time in the Bible where you get the sovereign intervention over the womb of a woman, do you know what you're seeing? What you're seeing is God. God's redemptive plans. He is moving his redemptive plans forward by setting aside whatever it is that is in his way. And such is the case with Ruth. Not even the normal uncertainties of procreation will stop him from accomplishing his redemptive ends. And his plan of redemption comes to its finest hour when he completely sets aside the procreative process and inhabits the womb of a virgin and the Savior arrives. The New Testament Goel, the New Testament Kinsman Redeemer, the New Testament Boaz and standing squarely in the center of that redemptive plan is a middle-aged man who married a Moabite of all people. And to that Moabite, God gave conception and their son was one of the ancestors of the Messiah. God splices their son into the ancestral line of the Messiah. And listen, the salvation of the whole world comes through an interracial marriage. And by his so doing, Yahweh is vindicated. It's a theodicy. You know, guys, in the midst of your own struggle, in the midst of your own pain, in the midst of your own trial, in the midst of your own sufferings, God doesn't get much applause. It's towards the end of the story. It's towards the end of the event. It's towards the end of the pain. It's towards the end of the suffering where we begin to see, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you mean to tell me that was what he was up to? And then we all step back and say, Oh, if I had only known back when I was saying I was so angry at you. Back when I thought I was empty, I didn't understand you. And this is eternal life. That they may know you. That they may know this God, this God that does this, this God who sends a Redeemer and marries a Moabite and he gives, they give birth to Boaz that lends itself to an ancestral line that leads to Christ. Oh my gosh. Only you could accomplish something out of this mess. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now, one other thing, guys, before I quit. Before I I want you to go back with me to that description that I gave you at the very beginning of the wedding, of the wedding process. You remember the engagement? They were considered a couple. They had a little ceremony. He goes off to build a house. He's gone up for up to 12 months. He comes back at a torch-lit procession, gets his bride. There's a shout. You remember all that I gave you? And I said, listen up to that you're going to need it in a few minutes. Well, it's time to use it. I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I, we live in a time frame similar to a betrothed, but not yet married woman in Israel. I'm saying that you and I are living in a time frame that is similar to a woman in this culture who was betrothed but not yet married and to us our bridegroom says this he says he says to the to his awaiting bride he says i, I know i know that things are not like you want them right now I know that many of your dreams are not yet coming true. I need, you to, I need you to understand that things aren't what I'm going to one day make them to be. But until I come and take you to my father's house, I am devoting myself to one thing and that is, I am preparing a place for you. And my spirit on my behalf is devoting himself to one thing. And that is preparing you to enjoy me for all eternity. Our bridegroom says this My goal for you right now is not to make your life as pleasant as possible. What you're experiencing now is a process. Is a process of enlarging your heart to allow you to love me above all else. In this time frame. In the midst of tasting what you're tasting. That the idea is that you're longing for me. will get bigger. And bigger. And bigger. This period of distance between me and you. Will end at exactly the appointed time. And so, my intended. Watch for it. Listen for the shout. And to that, the bride replies Could you make it quick? Would you come soon? Would you come quickly, Lord Jesus? But until He does, we wait. We wait confident that He has paid a price for us that guarantees our eternity. Oh, oh! we're everlastingly safe in his love for us. We're just waiting for him to come get us so that we can consummate our eternal relationship. And then, not now, but then, There'll be no more tears. But my brother and sister in Christ, we are not there yet. We're still betrothed. Not yet married. You know, there's um, there's a statement earlier in the story in chapter 2. When Boaz first meets Ruth and he commends her and he says, You have come to hide under the wings of Israel's God. And then in chapter three, she goes to the threshing floor, you know, at midnight and gets in bed with him and says, Would you hide me under your wings? And then in chapter four, beginning in verse 13, all of it happens. And they're both hidden under Yahweh's wings. But between chapter 2 and 3 and then the consummation in chapter 4, the Moabite, the intended, the engaged, the betrothed, she's got to wait until she finally sits down at the wedding feast. So do we. And it's then and only then when God will be fully vindicated. Our Father, I do pray that you'll remind your people that nothing can stop you from accomplishing your redemptive ends. Not our pain, not our struggles. Not our divorces, not our addictions, not our bankruptcies, none of that, not our anger, not our disappointment, not our disillusionment, not our unfaithfulness, none of that will stop you from accomplishing your intended redemptive purposes. And oh God, while we wait. Would you remind us, would you remind us that the price has been paid and that we are everlastingly safe? And all we await now is the return of the groom to take us to his father's house. Might that buoy our souls in the midst of our own struggles? And for those, Father, that you brought here this morning who have not yet met the Savior of ours, would you show him in all of his saving beauty? Would you open eyes so that they might see Jesus Christ and the great work that he has accomplished for his bride? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name, amen.